Today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 30. Again, that's Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 30. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can reach down uh, and grab the Bible that it's in the chair in front of you and flip to page 780. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who... He also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground, Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good to be with you guys. Would you join me as we continue to worship as we pray? Oh, Lord God, your word indeed is more precious than fine gold, sweeter than purest honey. As we turn to your scripture, would you send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace, 
so that the good news of your love and truth would shine forth in our eyes, that we would delight in your word, so that we cannot help but respond with wonder, faith, joy, and trust. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. Chapter 24 and 25, Jesus has been preaching through this uh, Olivet Discourse. Um, and Jesus has been teaching about his second coming, his return to his disciples in multiple parables. Disciples were asking about his return. When will these things be? Meaning, when will he return? And Jesus ends chapter 24 with um, teaching his disciples that, you know what? No one knows. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour about his return. Um, and that word is parousia. Angels don't know when he will return, and neither does Jesus know. Only the Father knows when he will return. And we are charged at the end of the chapters to stay awake, be vigilant, expecting his return. And Pastor Eugene ended the sermon with this uh, introduction of a parable of a wise and faithful servant who timely provides food for the household of the master while the master's away. This is a basic duty of a servant, and to do so would be the right thing. And in contrast with the wise, faithful servant, you have this wicked servant. In recognizing that the master is being delayed, shamefully mistreats other servants, wastes food and drinks with other drunkards, and is rebuked upon the master's return. You can't help but hear the echoes of Jesus rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees in contrast to setting up his disciples as the true teachers. And upon the master's return, the faithful and the wise servant is approved and given more to steward versus the wicked who's cast into hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We are reminded of this dual subject that repeats, dual theme of final judgment that Jesus is going to usher in when he returns, and this separation. He's going to come and judge, and when he does come and judge, he will separate those that can join him and those who can't. We think of in this society, Jesus as a loving and kind, but it is Jesus who speaks more about that judgment and separation than anyone else between those who can enter with him to eternity in heaven and those who will be separated and cast into hell. And today we continue with parables of the kingdom that refers to his second coming, the Persia parables of the kingdom. Now, before jumping into this somewhat of a familiar passage to some of us about the ten virgins, I want to just set us up because um, maybe some of us are not familiar with the whole marriage system in, in Jesus' time. There are three phases that you would go through if you're a Jew in Jesus' time. The first would be the engagement, and the engagement is a time when two fathers would come together and agree to give the son and daughter, to each other. It's, a, it's an agreement, official contract between fathers. Kids are not involved. And as I think about, you know, 
you know, my kid's 15. It's like, this is not a bad idea. And I've heard from some of you uh, recent dads of daughters. It's like, oh, this might be, a, you know, a good idea too. But after the engagement, which is only, you know, preceded by the parents, an official separate ceremony happens between the couple themselves. Now, remember, um, Mary and Joseph's were betrothed. So from engagement, you go then to betrothal. Betrothal is when the, the couple themselves come together, they make vows, they make covenants and promises with each other before families and friends. And now this is an actual marriage ceremony. They haven't consummated yet, but they're engaging in a legal contract, and then after that betrothal, they're officially married as husband and wife. Now, if something happens between this betrothal after the betrothal, they'll have to go through a divorce. If the, the man passes away after, then the woman would be considered a widow. So the fathers come together for this initial engagement, and the couple themselves commit, recognize before families and friends, and becomes betrothed and legally married. And often after the betrothal time, you the man would take about an average up to a year to prepare to bring his wife. That could include anything like, you know, building an addition to his father's home so that he and his wife can live, or he could build a separate home of his own. Or in addition, he might purchase a land, begin to cultivate so that there will be a means to take care of her and the family. And during this preparation the girl would continue to live with her parents. So you have the engagement, you have the betrothal, and then you're going into the marriage feast. Um, it was a custom in those days for the groom on the night of the wedding feast to go and visit the home of the bride. The groom would speak with the parents, and they would have to grant release of their daughter to go with the groom to that home. Now, as a sign of honor, the parents would sometimes make the groom wait. Um, the longer you, the parents would make them wait, greater honor that they will be giving toward their daughter. You know, the, the groom would come, would make arguments about allowing them to release her, and the parents would stall and delay. Um, and the longer they delayed, again, um, it would give the daughter greater uh, honor. In this story, the groom was delayed quite a bit. So the bride's parents honored her for a long time and made it difficult for the release to happen so that he and the groomsmen uh, with the bridesmaid would join her and go back to groom's home. Um, Typically, it would happen at night, and they would parade through the town or the village. They'll be singing, dancing, torches would be lit, and it would be a very momentous feast, to say the least. And this is the setting of the story. You know, this couple has been engaged. They have been betrothed. Now, finally, the man has prepared a home and has come to ask for the permission from the parents. And there's a delay. Now, in a village... A wedding was probably one of the greatest events. Uh, friends, family, extended family would be involved. And unlike uh, our day and age, 
Um, it will be a protracted engagement of celebration, often a week to even two weeks. And it's not like after the wedding feast the day, they leave for honeymoon. They will be um, celebrating with the, um, the groomsmen's party and the bridesmaids' party for a long time. And after a week or two, they would want them to leave so that you know, they can just live a married life together. So in this context, um, we have the final um, setting of the third you know, um, wedding happening. And here we have these virgins, 10 virgins who are, who've been asked to uh, join this bride. And um, they're holding these, in, in the Bible it, it mentions as lamps, but most likely these are probably torches on a stick. Um, there will be cloth on top, and you will dip it in oil um, so that because as they're moving, they're dancing, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't go out. And these torches serve kind of like, uh, like the flowers that the bridemaids would carry, right? It would kind of symbolize that they belong to the wedding party. And having it would show that, and if you don't, then you're not part of that party. And you would need sufficient amount of oil, and typically a torch, if you dip it, could last anywhere from like 15 minutes. Um, but, uh, you know, they would need to have enough sufficient amount of oil because they would say, the groom's coming, the groom's coming, multiple times. And as you're waiting through the night, you would need to have ample amount of oil to so that when the procession actually begins, they'll have enough oil to go through the whole journey with the, the groomsmen party, with the groom, along with the bridemaids and the bride herself, finally. The crisis uh, appears around midnight. You know, the parents took a longer time. They, um, the, the ten virgins, they fall asleep, and they hear the announcement, groom's coming. So finally, they, they wake up, um, all ten of them were, were asleep, and as they get their torches ready, the, the foolish virgins realize they don't have enough oil at all. They didn't prepare anything. And they asked the wise virgins who had prepared to share. The wise ones realized it's not enough to share. Go into the town, buy some more. Um, the five foolish ones end up going to town, buying the extra oil, and they come. And now the door's locked. They have already entered the home of the groom. And they knock. Lord, Lord, open the door. And whenever you hear a name repeated twice, there's a lot of pathos, deep kind of affection. There's empathy. It's like, Lord, Lord, open. They think they are intimate with this master, this, this Lord. They're part of the inner circle. They belong there. But what does the master say? What, does, what do they say? Um, truly, amen, I say to you, I don't know you. Not that they don't recognize these five. Clearly, they know who they are, but these five foolish virgins, he, he doesn't know them intimately. They don't have a relationship. When Jesus comes, 
And the groom's coming here is referencing Jesus' second coming, as we see again and again in different parables. It will be too late to become true Christians. That commitment to recognize that we are a sinner in need of a Savior, that recognition that God is our master, we are to serve him, has to be made now because we don't know when he will return. The foolish thought perhaps they could, you know, the others who had extra could share. Or the foolish probably also thought, you know what, you know, we could go get it at the last minute. And maybe you've been there where you've been too late. Too late to do that which you thought you could do. Imagine, ladies, it's your wedding day. You ask 10 of your best friends, I don't know how you could have 10 best friends, but to be part of your bridesmaids group, and you gather together at your rehearsal, all 10 of your bridesmaids come, the groom and the groomsmen come, and the wedding director says after the rehearsal, hey, ladies, make sure tomorrow come at least two hours before with your shoes, with everything, with the dress, your hair done, be early. And the next morning, next day comes, and about two hours before the wedding, half of the bridesmaids are there, and you're getting a little anxious. The wedding director is getting anxious. The groom's getting anxious. The, bri- the, the wedding party's getting anxious. And as the clock ticks, you realize, you know what? Like, we need to start soon. And the director says, sorry, we need to just start, because your, half of your bridesmaids are not here, and... Um, we got to just go. Now, an hour later, your five bridesmaids come during the reception, and they say, we overslept. They missed the whole ceremony, and they just want to join the reception. Can you imagine what you would feel, what you would be thinking about these best friends that you thought were so special? Would you be able to allow them to join your festivities? I mean, I've officiated weddings where some members of the wedding party were late um, and it it was not well received. Um, I can't imagine if you just totally missed the wedding how we would feel. There more than three, but there are especially three noticeable surprises when we look at this parable. You know, these ten virgins, they all look the same. You can't tell the difference. It's kind of like the visible kingdom of God or the visible church. We, they all look the same. We all look the same in that we don't know who is who. Outwardly, we can't be distinguished, but inwardly, there is a distinction. Only Lord knows. And when he comes, he will distinguish. And there are certain things that you just can't borrow. There are certain things that you can't borrow from someone else. You can't borrow someone's salvation. Each one of us, we have to acknowledge that we are a sinner, 
we have to trust in Jesus as a Savior, and we have to follow Jesus as a master. Our family, our friends, our relationships does not give us this kind of a transferable access to Jesus. And lastly, one thing, there are times when it is too late. When Jesus returns, it will be too late. Here the bridegroom is referring to Jesus. And the bridegroom's coming is referring to Jesus' second coming, the parousia. And the ten virgins, they represent the visible church, mixed with true disciples and false disciples. We are called to be vigilant in our readiness to be prepared. And as these wise, wise virgins in their preparation, they're ushered into the celebration of the marriage feast. I think this is an important reminder. Earthly marriage ultimately is a pointer to the heavenly marriage feast of the Lamb. It's not the ultimate. It's a penultimate pointer to what awaits us. In contrast, the foolish virgins, they're disqualified to enter. They can't enter the marriage feast because they're not prepared. They haven't been vigilant. They personally are not ready to enter. And the master's not going to let them in because he doesn't know them. They think he knows them. They think they know him. But Jesus says through the parable, Amen, truly I say to you, I don't know you. That knowledge, not a cognitive knowledge, but biblically knowing, knowing the other person. Many in the visible church, like ours, who are part of the kingdom, his kingdom, the visible kingdom, this is a harsh teaching. Because many of us will be unprepared. You know, there are disciples like Judas Iscariot who've been with Jesus amongst other disciples who eventually betray him. Now, going back to chapter 24, the parable of the faithful steward, um, you can't help but see the reference to church leaders or pastors and elders, but this parable and the one after is referring to all believers. The entire visible church and the question that I can't help but wonder is, like, will we be prepared when he returns? This Perusia par uh, parable that points us that, you know, being outwardly, visibly part of Jesus' kingdom, even professing his name, is not enough. Because if we are just nominal disciple, then we won't get to enter. We might think because we sing these songs, we're baptized, we make professions publicly, and we are visible members of this church, that necessarily means we know Jesus. But those outward professions and confessions and participations does not guarantee if we don't personally have that relationship with Jesus. Salvation by faith is not something we can borrow. It is something that we have to prepare ourselves. Maybe you're reading the Bible. 
you're even coming to church, singing these songs, and even part of smaller groups. Yes, be part of these. Be participating. However, even in that journey, might we be perhaps procrastinating in getting ourselves ready? May, would it be possible that we think simply because we are associating with these people that we too would be gained access to that eternity with Christ? Are you prepared to see Jesus now? Or do you find yourself this whole life of salvation and repentance to be too serious, too inconvenient? You think, you know, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Are we perhaps being foolish like these five foolish virgins? Saving grace is not transferable. Salvation is not transferable. Jesus teaches this very unpopular message again and again. Jesus ended uh, chapter 24 warning his disciples about his second coming that will be like the days of Noah where people are eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Um, as we look at this story, this parable of marriage and the wedding feast, are we being wise or are we being foolish? The door is open now for today is the day of salvation. We really don't know what tomorrow holds. And I think we've been humbly reminded of that as we've been walking through some of the world's um, conditions. When it is closed, when the door is closed, it is too late. Now let's move into the second parable, uh, the parable of the talents. Um, now this parable, um, going from verses 14 through 30, is connected with obviously the prior parable, verses 1 through 13, and even the shorter parable before. Um, this passage starts with the word for, and all three parables are connected with this unexpectedness of the central figures coming. Now, um, end of chapter 24, you see faithful and wise servants versus wicked servants. The, the faithful and wise servant is basically meeting out food and drinks, providing for the master's family household in a timely fashion, as a servant should. In contrast with the wicked servant who sees a delay, basically, you know, abuses other members of the uh, household of the master's family and squanders, misuse. Faithful and wise versus wicked. Last parable with the virgins, we see wise versus foolish. And here in the parable of the talents, we see faithful servants in contrast with wicked and lazy, indolent servants. There's a pattern that's being shown again and again here. If the former Perusia parable points us about the need for preparation, this parable of the talents balances it with, by reminding us that, yes, we need to be vigilant, we need to be expectant, be ready, but we can't just be 
idle while we are ready. We need to be working. We need to be stewarding. We need to be taking advantage of all the opportunities and resources the Lord has given us. So this parable shows us how do we wait. Now, when you read the New Testament, in uh, one of the churches called Thessalonica, uh, Apostle Paul found these Christians who are so preoccupied with the second coming of Jesus that a bunch of them just stopped working. They stopped earning wages. They stopped supporting themselves and their family, and they became a burden to the rest of the church. And to such people who are so passionate and focused on waiting for his second coming, you know what Jesus, um, what God tells, teaches to Apostle Paul? It's like, get back to work. Get back to work as you wait. Throughout church history, Um, We've seen people in their great intentions of living a ready, vigilant life listen to people who thought they could, like, guess when Jesus would return. And there were, like, especially in in my lifetime, two years, 1994 or 2011, when this guy who, who supposedly a teacher of the word calculated Jesus' return, and a bunch of people, they literally sold everything they had, and they, you know, just waited for his return. Interestingly, the guy who predicted, he didn't sell everything he had. He kept all his licenses and his websites and everything. It's just those who followed him sold everything they had, and they were literally waiting. And when Jesus didn't return, they were devastated. There are tendency where you go all in and being ready, we can err on that end of the spectrum. Although Jesus said, you know what? I don't know when I'm going to return. I don't know. The, the angels don't know. Only the Father knows. So why would anyone think they can calculate, right? On the other the spectrum, Apostle Peter is rebuking in his uh, letter to Second Peter, there, there are those who basically began living as Jesus wasn't going to return. Like, he hasn't returned, you know what? He's not going to return. Let's just keep on living as if he's not going to return, doing things our way, what we want. And Apostle Peter had to rebuke them, warn them, you know what? Jesus will return. Live in that anticipation. Know that he will come to judge the living and the dead. We recite that in one of the creeds we um, do, right? So there is this tension that we need to acknowledge because we can easily err on the side of just, you know, working vigilantly or just waiting passively. We're, we're called to wait, knowing that he will come, but wait with this attitude of serving, working hard, knowing that he will come and evaluate what we have done. Um, if an outsider or to come and see the way we are living as a church. If an outsider were to examine your life or my life and see, would they be able to notice that we are actually living intentionally with this kind of vigilance? Would it show that sort of intentionality, this kind of readiness? that we're living for the actual return 
of the Lord who laid down his life, who spoke of as his final sermon saying again and again, I will return. I don't know when. Just be ready. I will come like a thief in the night. Be ready. Know that I will judge. Be ready. So there is, again, this whole visible church and invisible church. The visible church includes the true disciples as well as the false disciples. And in the parables of the kingdom, often references those visible kingdom that includes both true disciples and false disciples, like the parable of the ten virgins and here, parable of the talents. Only the Lord sees the true disciples. We don't. We can't. Now, the interesting thing is Jesus isn't talking about those who deny Christ, those who say, I don't believe in God. That's why it's an indictment and it's a strong challenge to us who are coming together. He's speaking to those who acknowledge Jesus, who acknowledge God, who come who call him, it's to those of us here that he's giving these parables. Jesus is telling these parables to his disciples, a part of a church. And if we truly are his true disciples, we are to use and store what has been entrusted to us. We can't waste it. Or squander it. Let me ask you, um, when your boss goes away on a business trip or a vacation, how do you work? For those of you guys who are bosses and owners, you're probably thinking, wondering, how do my employees work when I'm not there? Do you work just as hard because you know that your ultimate master is the Lord, or do you find yourself goofing around, maybe watch a little bit more movies or whatever show that you might be watching or play a little bit of more video game, not fully be contributing at your work hour? These are usually also the same people who complain when they don't get a promotion or when, don't, when they don't get a raise. It's like, what? Why would you think you would get a promotion? If that's how you work, why would you think you'll get a raise when you're goofing around when your boss is not there? In today's passage here, we have a master who is wealthy, he's about to go on a trip. And uh, unlike today where you can go on a business trip across the world and be back in a week or less, depending on how many hours you want to take, Back in those days, you could be gone for months, even a year or two. So an actual servant wouldn't really know because it's not like today, you know, your boss tells you, I'll be gone from this day, I'll come back. So you know exactly when you need to go back and be, you know, working full gear. Not, not in those days. You just don't know. There's like a loose timing that you have a guesstimation of, okay, possibly return in the next three to six months to 20, 12 to 24 months. That's really hard to play with. And this master who owns a lot also has a lot of servants and knows his servants well begins to assign assets to his servants. 
knowing and expecting some sort of a prophet while he is away. To one, he gives five talents. To another, two talents. To another, one. Talent is not a native natural ability, but it's actually a weight. And depending on whether it's gold, silver, or bronze, the value of this asset property could fluctuate quite a bit. But by the looks of verse 18 and the words that's used, likely it's a silver. And one talent probably can range anywhere from 20 years of a day laborer's wage versus two talents, 40 years, five talents, 100 years. So this is large sum. Now, the master could have given a bunch of bags of coins or could have given a ledger um, saying this is what you are actually entrusted with. Either way, the master knows the servant's ability and meets out what he thinks is appropriate. It's a picture of entrusting that servant with all these resources. And as Christians, we can think of it as receiving uh, various spiritual ability, privilege, responsibility, and resource and opportunity. Um, kind of like referencing back to chapter 24, those are given to religious leaders who are supposed to take care of the servants here. is referring to all servants who are given the responsibility to steward opportunities and resources that are entrusted to us. Now, when you see the, uh, the servants... What's noticeable is the immediacy of the first two servants. The one who received five and the one who received two immediately take action. They don't wait. They don't ponder. But immediately, right away, um, go out. They trade and make five more and two more. They're quick and they're faithful with what they've been given. And in contrast, the one who received one talent, the emphasis is here. Just like in the previous parable, the emphasis is on the five virgins who are foolish and not wise. Here, the emphasis is on this one talented steward, servant, who is radically different from the other two. Here, this man digs a hole and just covers it in safekeeping. No matter how little, we have no excuse. We are responsible to return on what's been given, whether five, whether two, and even if we think we only got one. That's really the point. Everyone is equally responsible to what we've been entrusted. Now, a long time passes, the master comes. And he comes to return and settle accounts. And this is a financial language again. Uh, settling of accounts is a commercial term. He wants to look at their books. Like, how well have you managed what I've entrusted you? He wants to see how they have stewarded what's been entrusted. Suggests, so yes, how much do you think you have been entrusted in terms of opportunities, privileges, resources, teachings, including your time, including your talent, including your treasure. When we see these two servants, the two true disciples, there's this eagerness when the master comes. 
there's this delight. It's like, let me show you, Master, what I've done while you were away. And they show the, you know, the work of doubling what's been entrusted. And I'm thankful for the servant who had two. He, he made two more. He didn't have to get five more. He just had to be faithful with what's, what was given. Um, and remember, the disciples are still jockeying for position and power and importance. They're still not willing to wash each other's feet and even the feet of Jesus. And remember, Judas Iscariot is, with one, of, is one of these 12 disciples who happened to eventually you know, um, deny Jesus and sell him out, simply doing what he wanted, not trusting and following his true master that he says he is following. This servant who had one talent, he just wasted away all that was given to him, his opportunity, his resource that the master had entrusted. It's kind of like the distinction happens when the groom came. You see who's really wise and who's really foolish. When the master comes, the separation and distinction is visible. The good and faithful servant who's been faithful to what's been entrusted, and the, what, wicked and lazy servant with nothing to show for, did absolutely nothing, made no profit for the master, had no real interest in doing well for the master. Do we know the responsibility we have received? This separation repeats again, whether from wheat and the weed, and next week when Pastor Eugene preaches from the sheep or the goats, here from the good and faithful with wicked and lazy, the wise versus the foolish. This false servant, this false disciple, you know what the problem was? That the parable shows us the big problem is that he did nothing. This great sin of omission. It's not he squandered, misused, like the parable in the end of chapter 24, who just used it and ate it up and consumed with other drunkards. No, you know what the problem is? It's like he didn't do anything with it. He didn't cheat. He didn't squander. He just took no advantage of the opportunity that the Lord, his master, has given. There's no fruit. And doing service to his master was just a drudgery. There's no joy. There's no love. And just as when it was too late, when the groom came for the wedding feast, when the master comes, it's going to be too late. To those who manage five and two, the master calls good and faithful servant and ushers it in to joy of the master's presence. And the master gives him more responsibility to steward. In contrast, you have this one talented servant who still considers himself a servant, has a distorted view of the master, has nothing to show for, he attacks the master's character, and you kind of like, can't help but hear 
the words of the older brother and the prodigal son parable. It doesn't really get the father and that prodigal son parable. Here, this servant doesn't really get. I mean, isn't this the same servant who has lived with this master, who has seen other servants serve this master? He, he doesn't get his master. And he feared the master, not in a biblical sense with a holy awe. And he ended up not doing anything. Again, he didn't squander, he didn't steal, he didn't misuse. He just did nothing with it. And that's the rebuke. When there is no fruit, when there is no love, when there's no delight in serving the master, working for the master's household. The master says, you know what? You could have put the money with a banker. And back in those days, they made a nice, maybe potentially up to 12%. So the bankers would make 12 and you would make 6 um, and would have made a decent return for the master. But you didn't even do that. And that would have been just as safe but you are not really interested in my success, are you, wicked and lazy servant? You just wanted to do what you wanted, and that's what exactly you did. You dug a hole, put that money there, and you did what you wanted to do instead of work for me. You're wicked, and you're lazy. He had wasted all the opportunity and resource the master had given And while the master ushers the faithful servant into this opportunity of even greater service in eternity, the wicked and lazy, he ushers them into hell. In the same language that ends chapter 24, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Saturday morning prior to beginning um, the new sermon series with Pastor Eugene on the, the Lord's Prayer, we went through the book of James. And book of James reminds us that faith without works is dead. Saving faith necessarily shows work because it's alive. It bears fruit. J.C. Ryle, let me end with this, says, let us leave this parable with a solemn determination by God's grace, never to be content with the profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about religion, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of saving faith in Christ, but do something too. Are you vigilant and ready for Christ's coming? When Jesus came the first time, most were not. Will we be ready? We recite that he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do we really believe that? Are we living that out? Brothers and sisters, are we personally ready to meet Jesus? Do we personally trust him as our savior of sin? As our master worthy to be served, to be followed? Or are we procrastinating, thinking, you know what, this life of repentance is too hard. Let me wait. Let me just, like, enjoy my life now and do that later. Is that how we're living? 
or maybe like the foolish virgins, because we're hanging out with other who seem to really have the in, do we also think that we can share what others have? Brothers and sisters, are we serving and working hard? Are we stewarding every opportunity that the Lord has entrusted us? Or are we like the wicked and lazy servant who shows no works? For faith without works is dead, as James reminds us. As we continue to meditate on these harsh teachings, may we humble ourselves and submit before the Lord, before his word. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself who so love that he is about to die, but he still, he doesn't beat around the bush about what's going to happen later. May we be vigilant. May we be ready. May we be bearing fruit for his glory. Let's pray.